You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are in probably one of the most famous parts uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, where we get to what we would see in Luke 11, where the disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, teach us how to pray. And, uh, and so we're actually, if you're nervous because we're covering a, a lot of verses, you, you, you probably should be. But um, we, uh, we, I, I kind of want to show, like, just take, step back and look at the text. I want to show how some of it ties together as we're getting started. And so if you look, like, what ties all this together is we see this word reward. Like, you, you see... Constantly, it's saying, hey, listen, you can have your reward from other people or you can have a reward from your Father in heaven. And that reward exists, you know, when we come to praying, when we come to fasting, when we come to giving. And so we see the word reward in verse 1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 15, 16, and 18. And then in verses 19 through 21, it changes from the word reward to where do we find our treasure? Like where does our heart find treasure? And then it gives us this treasure principle, like wherever our heart is or wherever we put our treasure, our heart will follow. And so Jesus steps in and he just warned us, like even looking at the text, look at chapter five, the last verse, verse 48. He says, be perfect, as your heavenly father is perfect. And then verse one of chapter six, he says, beware, bless you. That was the smallest little sneeze. Um, and so he says, be perfect. And then he starts chapter six and he says, be careful, beware. And so like even just kind of flowing this out, Jesus has just laid out this breathtaking description of morality that we all think is beautiful when we see it, but we also think it's unattainable. But like we hear, like he says this, rid your heart of anger and lust. And we say, sure, Jesus, yes. And, and we start to fight the battles and we start to put the phone away and we start to like confront those arguments in our heart where we're telling someone off. And we find that still in these corners of our heart, in these dark damp corners there's still this murderous intent in our heart or he says we hear turn the other cheek and go the extra mile and we say yes that's good when I see that kind of forgiveness in people I know something is good in them but then we say man if we give ourselves to that and we just turn the cheek and we go the extra mile man we will be taken advantage of it's not sustainable we say I object and so on one side, we say, man, yes, it's good and perfect. And then the other side, we're like, man, it scares me to death. And then Jesus says, you must be perfect. You must cover all of the law from the beginning to the end. You must enter into a perfect nature like that of God. And we say, okay, that's it. Like, let me add that to my to-do list. Good talk, Jesus. I'll see you at Christmas. I mean, your birthday. Like, okay, and we're like, man, how can we ever do that? And like, I, I want to make sure you, you know two things about you know, Matthew 5. Is first off, Matthew 5 is intended to be a bully to you to show that there's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. You don't have enough. 
but it's also meant to be a blueprint for the people of God that like the kingdom come would start with us. Like when we would look at this ethic, like it would start with us. We would be like this. There would be a humility about us. There would be a forgiving nature about us that would put things aside to let relationships thrive. There would be a giving nature about us. And so he says, be perfect. And then he says, be careful. Be careful. Matthew starts off with beware. The goal of a genuine heart depth change is in danger of losing itself in the murky waters of external doings. The goal of pleasing the Father is traded off for its warped counterfeit of pleasing people. And so we have this idea of what reward are you seeking ties us all the way through 21 verses. In the middle of it, we have this beautiful span of what it looks like to pray. In, in Luke 11, uh, we get the same prayer. It's just a little bit different. But we get the same prayer when the disciples come and say, teach us to pray. And so then Jesus says, hey, when you pray, pray like this. And he instructs how to pray, and we see things like Father, 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 all over the place, and he's trying to build this foundation. And so what's happening here is Jesus is telling us that there is a foundation that we have to have to pray like he prays, and it has to be given to us, and he's warning us about something inside of our heart that we may not be aware of. And so I just have two points in 21 verses, two points. The first one is Jesus wants you to understand you. Understanding me, understanding something inside of me that's really, really dangerous. And then he wants to under, us to understand prayer. Something that can change us in the most wonderful ways if we get first the foundation of it, of how we have this relationship. So understanding me, understanding prayer. Let's get started understanding me. It says the sin in me naturally puts on a soul-smothering show for the approval of others. We're gonna see this in multiple accounts. We're gonna see this dangerous power of sin, even after I become a Christian, that still lurks in the corners of my heart, that seeks to use everything and everyone and all circumstances, even good circumstances, to pull around myself. You know, Augustine, when he was seeing this inward power of a destructive pull in the lives of himself and others, he called it, he coined it in curvatus inse, which is Latin for curved inward upon myself. And it's simply saying that there is a power that lives inside of us that makes me a me monster, that makes me look for every opportunity to make much about me, every opportunity to try to bend attention, to build my reputation, or to escape attention, to hold a reputation. It makes everything about me. The power wants to use the applause of others to offset the emptiness that I feel in my soul. And so let's take a look at this. The first thing I want you to notice is this warning is to all of us, not just some of us. Like, like look at verse one, it says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, it doesn't really come out in the English because the English language is handicapped, uh, but it, it, it says, you all beware. 
It means all of it. Like right there, this is like the heading for everything that's gonna come, certainly through verse 18, I think even through verse 21, because it starts off with the plural and it says, you all need to beware. You need to be careful. This lives inside of all of us. And then it steps into the idea of giving, the idea of praying, the idea of fasting, and the you turns to singular, not plural. So he starts off with his declaration of this is a warning for all of us. And like this, we need to point out two things like when it comes to this. First, we, we need to deal with the lack of the second person plural in the English language and acknowledge that the South has been trying to help us with this with y'all. It has been trying to help for a long time. Like, like if you try to say you in plural, you gotta go with yous and that's not getting past any spell check. Or you gotta go with you all and that loses points in academic work. Or you gotta go with you guys and that doesn't sound very academic either. And so the South has been trying to help us with y'all and we need to embrace it as good and right. And I also wanna say this, like the South is also trying to preserve cursive with their signs of thankfulness. I mean, cursive, we are losing cursiveness. Like that's not a word, but we are losing it. Pretty soon coded messages will come from like retirement homes of people conspiring against everything just in cursive. Everyone will be like, I, I don't know. It's all tied together. I can't make this out. And so like we lack this like you all. And like, I mean, don't want to like plural. Like plural is hard in itself. We got add S, we got add ES, sometimes you add EN, like oxen. It's just difficult. Or you guess. This is not even my notes. Or you guess and you're like, man, look at the sheep. One or many? I don't know. Sheep or sheep? Kill the sheep. How hungry are you? Am I supposed to know by how hungry you are? I mean, how many do I kill? I mean, we don't know. Like there's things that are lost in the English language. What starts off first here is Jesus says, you all need to be weary. You all need to be warned. There is something that lives inside of you. Even after you know Jesus, even after you're growing, even after you have crossed from death to life, there is something that hangs on. And it is what Augustine says in Curvitus say, it wants to bend all things around you, to promote you, to protect you, to give control of you. And if you're like right now, you're like, no man, I'm very altruistic. I love to help people. We help people to make much of ourselves. That's his first example. And so it starts off with, you all. And so the first thing is he says, you all need to know that there is danger when we give, danger when we pray, danger when we fast. And so the first one, there is danger in me when I give. Like Jesus describes this hunger for the praise of others through giving in kind of a funny way. Like look at, look at verse two, it says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue or in the streets that they may be praised by others. Like this kind of goes from funny to, to, to scary really, really fast. And so the first like trumpet, it kind of goes to funny. Like it says, like there's no historical evidence that there was actually really a trumpet. Like some people talk about it. Some theologians even talk about it. And it's definitely possible because we do things like the giving thermometer, you know, like, hey man, we got to get this thing up, the giving thermometer. And so we pull it out. So the trumpet is certainly possible. Like maybe they had a trumpet, but then Jesus made fun of the trumpet. And so like, man, we got to put that back in the closet. We'll get it out later. Like we don't know. 
We don't know exactly what that means. And like, you know, symbols to give can be helpful. You know, sometimes like we present a need to the church family. And they're like, oh man, we didn't know you were broke. And I'm like, how'd you not know we were broke? Look around. Um, but like, so that, those can be fine. But Jesus starts off and he's saying this. He's saying it in a funny way to say, listen, he's using preacher hyperbole to say your ego is sounding off like a trumpet when you give. You are yelling, look at me, giving to this poor guy, look at me. And what he says is, then you have your reward. People who look at you, then you you have your reward. There's a danger inside of you that would do something that's good, that even benefits others, but for the wrong goal and the reward is cut short, you have your reward. But so it goes from funny to scary. Like, Like look at the word praised. And so it says right there, you know, you know, they give with trumpets blaring that they may be praised by others. The word there is doxozo, which is the same word in Matthew 5, 16, which if you look just a few verses back or one chapter back in Matthew 5, 16, it says this, in the same way let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory, same word, and praise your father who is in heaven. And so the goal in Matthew 5, 16 of external good works is to bring worship to God. And now Jesus uses the same word to show the danger when we have external things, that there's this internal battle that says, I don't know if I want God to have praise, I want to have praise. He says we all need to be weary because this lives inside of us, the inward battle of me. It's the ancient battle of Genesis 3. Can God be trusted or should I be God and should I decide? Can, should God be glorified in my decisions? Should more weight, that's what glory means, it means weightiness. Should more weight in my decisions go to God or more weight of my affections and esteem go to God or should they come to me? And he says that battle still rages inside of us. That satanic battle is lurking inside of us. Who should be worshiped, me or God? And so verse two, it goes on, it says, truly I say to you, they have received the reward. The warning is if you let self win and give for the approval of others, the only reward you get is the likes of people who you do it before. And so he says, instead of grandstanding when you give, Jesus prescribes generous giving that takes joy in knowing that God might be the only person who ever sees it. He says there's a way to defeat that and he's gonna get to it in just a minute. And so then it ends out with verse three and it says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand, left hand, know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret and your father who sees you in secret reward you. And so that phrase, not letting your left know what your right's doing, it's kind of a funny way to say, hey, just be wonderfully subtle and discreet in your giving. Don't let, you know, as you're giving with your right hand, your left hand like patting you on the back, like, mm, good job, way to go, right hand. I, just to let it be discreet. There's this beautiful discretion that can exist in generosity, also in prayer, also in fasting that takes joy, that God sees it, that there's a measure of your devotion and love for him, that you're always saying, God, I don't know how much I love you. I don't even know how much I trust you. I don't know how much I treasure you. But in these moments, in these disciplines, you can say, I know I trust you, love you, and treasure you this much. 
He says there's great reward for that. And so Jesus is saying, he's not saying don't, don't give. He's saying don't give, and he's painting a very specific picture of people. He's saying don't give like them. And the them, we're hearing him say it, and it's like shots fired. Don't give like them. And so he's pointing this picture. And then let's look at these other two really, really fast because he gives us examples of it listing, of living in our giving, but also in our praying. He says, the danger in me when I pray, verses five through eight. Like the next two examples of praying and fasting, he's going to say the same danger, the same motivation might live inside of us and he's warning us. And so he says in verse five, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, and we love that word, I'll get to it in a second. We must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, and they love to be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And so Jesus says, don't pray like those hypocrites. Now, the, the word hypocrite it comes from two Greek words, and so it comes from hypo, which means under, and then krino, which means judgment, and it's used to describe a theater actor, someone who puts on a mask, someone who does a role, who has lines and motions to win the judgment of others, someone who steps up on a stage to say, listen, will I have your approval or not? Now, the Bible talks about different kinds of hypocrisy, but right here, it, it, it's talking about a very masked hypocrisy that is talking about, man, when I pray, or when I give, or when I fast, I want a judgment of you, or a judgment in you, to be a certain way about me. It's not saying don't pray in public. You know, keep going, verse six, it says, but when you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in the secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask. And now we're going to unpack a lot of that here in just a minute. But just, like, just to say briefly here. Jesus is saying there is a kind of prayer that is powerful to change you and you need to get alone and talk to God about what was really going on to learn what he is really, really like and what he thinks about you and what he thinks about your circumstances that you might grow in trust for the future, that it might change you. He's not saying don't pray. He's not even saying don't ever pray in public. But he is saying, don't pray like them. Don't pray to impress others. If that's your motive, if you let that win out, then you have your reward, the likes of others. And so the, the, the second thing, jump down to verse 16. Now we're gonna talk about fasting very, very quickly because it's miserable and I hate it, but we're gonna talk about it. It talks about the same danger living in your heart when I fast. The same danger in my heart when, when I fast. And so it says, and when you fast, which it's worth noting, it's not saying, and if you fast, it seems that Jesus thinks that that's gonna be a part of your life from time to time. And so, and when you fast, which is actually a little ironic 
because we only have Jesus really fasting once that we know of, and that's when it's kind of a forced fast in Matthew chapter four when he's in the wilderness. And then he's confronted later by the, by the Pharisees, why don't your disciples fast? And he talks about, hey, I'm the bridegroom, we're partying, you can't do that. And so he kind of defends them from it. And then we see it very little actually in the New Testament. It's a huge Old Testament thing, but we actually see it very, very little in the New Testament. And I think it's because the disciples heard what Jesus said about fasting and they just kind of, you know, just did it and didn't talk about it a lot. But we see it twice in Acts when they're trying to make a decision about the movement of the spirit. And we see it in, you know, Paul's life when he's under affliction, which is just a note about fasting. Like fasting is removing physical food for a period of time that you might focus on a deeper spiritual need that you need to feel, like you feel it. It's haunting you, but you need to feel it specifically. And so when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, you know, Satan said, hey, make bread here. He says, hey, I've got bread you don't even know about. I need, I need the words from my father. It's a food that I need. And so if you find yourself in like a, a moment of decision and you don't know what to do, like the scripture would say, man, fast. Take time and then seek the Lord and break the fast as soon as you feel like God shows up and answers those prayers. Even if it's just a little bit. Even if it's not even an answer for what to do, but it's an answer for I see you. Like spend time in the scriptures and focusing on that. Or sometimes fasting just for lamenting when you see something broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And you're like, I don't even know how to feel about that. And so, okay, that was four words. And when you fast... It says, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And so then he gives example of what to do. It's so the same battle. Do I want people to see me and know just how spiritual I am because I'm like, you know, walking around like the walking dead, you know? I'm like, oh, I'm just fasting because Jesus loves me. Um, and says, don't do that. He says, but when you fast... Anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so when he says, anoint your head uh, with oil, wash your face, he says, just go about normally. Just go about normally, and when you have the, like the hunger pains inside of your life, like inside of your stomach, it's a reminder, man, I have a deeper hunger for the words of God that I don't even know, and that hunger is pointing that way. And so it's about need, but he's saying there is a danger, dangerous pull inside of us. He says, when we find rotten decay persisting in our heart, we'll try to cover the darkness with a glossy paint of religious duties. And Jesus is warning that there is something in me, there is something in you, there is something in y'all, there is something in all of us that wants to leverage the applause of others to offset the emptiness that I feel in my soul. And so first, Jesus uses these examples to say, do you understand the battle in your heart, how deep sin goes, that it will use good things to try to make you into something? And so we have this warning, understanding me. But then we have Jesus wants us to understand prayer. Now, there, there's a way to preach through this where we could take phrase by phrase and be here for 100 years, and it is good. It would be worth it. 
Like we would find all kinds. There's also a way to kind of have a sweeping effect to kind of see the whole, kind of see the forest from the trees, to step back and look at what Jesus is saying. And that's what we're gonna do because of time's sake. And so look at this, it says understanding prayer. Like there's so much before us in prayer that we don't, that we don't even know. Like Jesus' message has been don't be like them, don't give like them, don't fast like them, and don't pray like them. And then he's gonna give us an example and say, but pray like this. And the first thing that he wants you to see, or the first thing I wanna direct your eyes to, is like the foundation of prayer isn't your effort, but it's a relationship. Jump back to verse seven. It says, and when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And so two phrases. First, there are many words. Like we're prone to think that if we pray in such a way, that if we get the words right, that if we're super, super theological and we use words like I beseech you, like it is serious. And if we use many words and we pray a lot, we're prone to think that God will eventually be worn down and give us attention and meet with us that it's like God is standing behind the the bedroom door waiting for you to get to a certain level of you know amount of prayer and once you reach it then he opens the door and he comes in and he's saying that's not the foundation or the, the word empty phrases like if you see that word empty phrases it comes from a word that means babbling and it probably describes more intensity and so sometimes we think like, man, if I'm really devoted, if I'm really, really serious, if I'm more fervent, then God will notice me and God will answer me. But Jesus says, you're not heard because of the intensity of your prayer. You're not heard because of the length of your prayer. You're not heard because of the perfect theological content of your prayer. I mean, in fact, he just said, it's not even like, I already know what you need. And so he says in verse eight, do not be like them. Don't give yourself to me and God will hear me if I just pray long enough or God will hear me if I just mean it enough. He says, don't give yourself to that. Don't think it's because of my prayer being long or don't think it's because of my prayer like I'm really, really mean it. Don't be like that. I don't answer prayers on that basis. So what basis? Verse eight, look at for your father knows what you need before you even ask him. This confronts two ways that we try to interact with God. See, we either try to interact with God in our, in our fasting, in our giving, in our praying, in our religious life. We either try to interact with him in such a way that my effort earns his affection like he's a boss and I need to outwork all the chumps around me so I can get employee of the month and then God is gonna invite me in, listen to my concerns about the company because I've got some concerns about the company, but I have to outperform other people to rise to the top so God will take me seriously. And he says, God doesn't work like that. He doesn't work on the basis of effort because if you're the employee of the month, he, he went, Jesus went a long way to say a lot of things that ultimately, Matthew 5, he worked really hard to say even the employee of the month is a murderous, adulterous, lying, ticking time bomb. He says it's not based on effort. He says it's based on a grace based relationship and that's why he says pray to your father look, look at that you see 
It says Father in verse eight, but Father is everywhere. Look, it, it says that our Father who is in heaven in verse one, and then in verse four, it says your Father who sees. Verse six, it says shut the door and pray to your Father. And then it goes on to say your Father who sees. Verse eight, it says your Father knows what you need. Verse 14 and 15, your Father will forgive or will not forgive. I mean, so we see Father, Father, and then we see Father twice in verse 18. 10 times, Jesus is adamant. You can relate to God as a child relates to his or her dad. Jesus made a way that you step in like a son or daughter steps into a family. A son or daughter does not apply to the family. Whether you're biologically brought into the family or whether you're adopted, they don't apply and show a resume that says, hey, I am like a really good kid. You want me. They're brought in through pain and brought in through joy and they're celebrated. So it says, you know, it starts off with like, we can accept the foundation that God relates to us like a loving father. And so prayer is so different when you accept this. We've got some recordings of our kids telling us stories and uh, I mean, if you came over, we'd like, you'd be like, oh my gosh, you're getting so old. I was actually just told last night, because um, I, was, I was talking smack about the upcoming turkey bowl that we have going on. And so uh, we're recruiting and uh, we're doing really good. I actually tried to get Hannah to leave Brandon's team to join my team, but she was like, I'm married to him. I'm like, hey, it's all right, it's no big deal. Um, so she went with righteousness. She actually said, what God puts together, let no man separate. And I was like... <laughs> Well, I mean, if you want to get all technical, you know, I mean. Uh, and so that's happening next week. I think we have six teams. It's going to be a ton of fun. Uh, but I was talking smack, and uh, someone last night was like, hey, I'm not saying your prime is, like, uh, in the past, but it's definitely behind you. And so I was like, what do they know? They're only a doctor, you know, no big deal. Um, actually, they are a doctor. And so, but, like, we have these recordings of our kids telling stories and man, we love to listen to them. And the funny thing is, is there's huge holes in the stories. They're kind of circular. They don't make sense. They ramble on about insignificant details and the stories actually never come to a conclusion and yet we still listen to them. Like there's something different about a relationship between a father and a small child who has limited understanding. And so the picture of this, when he says, enter into your closet, it's like this, like get into the box fort. Your father loves to get into the box fort to listen to you, to help you understand you and your circumstances that you might understand that he is in the box fort because he loves you. You know, I, I got up early this morning and I was kind of working and Anna came down the stairs and she snuggled between me and Charlie and she was looking and she said, did you write all those words this morning? And I was like, no. And then she saw box fort. She said, tell me about the box fort. She read it right off the page. That's a great picture of prayer. Or, or you know, just to listen or, or to help. Like when, when our kids were little, man, they loved to help us do projects. I have a video of Cruz. I'm helping him with a hammer, knock out sheetrock because we're about to take a wall out. He loved that. And every time he saw a hammer for like two years, he would pick it up and start hitting sheetrock, which was not, I did not love that. <laughs> like he wasn't actually very good help, 
If I, were, if I was a boss or OSHA, I would have fired him. But prayer is not about God getting help from you. Prayer is not about you leveraging your resume so that he might look at you. Prayer is standing on a foundation of a child to a father where he gets down in the box for it and he listens and he helps you sort out and he is with you. Your prayers aren't heard because of your effort or because you impress God. They are heard because he is your father. It is a different foundation. You are made a son or daughter of God by sheer grace. And so Jesus says, our father, our father, our father, not just my father, our father, y'all's father. If you step into Christ, if you step into God's kingdom through Jesus, you get to say, our father. It is a grace-based relationship and it's different, but it is soul changing. And so I went back and forth. Like the next point is the goal of prayer is to galvanize the grace-based relationship that you have with Father God. And so I went back with a goal, back to the goal, back to a goal, back to the goal. And I think it is the goal because verse eight says he already knows what you need. And so if you look at the prayer, what you see is out of seven verses, six verses I attribute to a relationship about who God is, learning and accepting what he is doing, asking for forgiveness for where you have fallen and asking for help and protection in a broken world. And there's one verse that asks for something like a tangible thing, give us our daily bread, verse 11. Six out of seven verses, I think, deal with relationship. And there's all kinds of uh, you know, acronyms. Like there's an ACTS acronym. There's a PRAY acronym. I came, I'm bringing the triple A threat. The triple threat. And so it's just this, adore, accept, ask. And, and so first, we see this adore. Time spent in prayer, adoring God will change you in the most wonderful ways. Verse nine. It says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so this tells us four things. Like first, he is a father. It says, our Father, a really good dad who is devoted to his kids, who always shows up, who loves to play with them, who will defend them to the very end, to the very death, and adores his children. Adoring God is thinking and talking about his fatherlessness, or his father, fatherliness, this, his fatherliness, this. Talk about how he's a dad. He will always show up. But it doesn't stop. It says, our Father in heaven. He is heavenly. And that means he is otherworldly. He is beyond what we think is good in this world. He is way better. He is delightful. He is wonderful. He is fantastic. I literally just used the thesaurus the, 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 the function on my computer to get those words. He's altogether different and altogether good. He can be trusted. And when you talk and think about what he is like, it will change you. Or he, he is holy. Verse nine, it says, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And that means he is set apart, altogether good and different in the most respectable, upright and good ways. Adoring God is thinking and talking about his holiness until you know that his desires for you are good. Even when they don't look good, don't feel good, they are good. He is a holy father, can be trusted. Knowing that will change you. Or the end of verse nine, he is knowable. It says, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You can know God. 
He is not like this unknowable force that must be reckoned with. He is a knowable being that created everything. Everything began in him, is sustained with him, and will find purpose through him. And he has a name and he sent Jesus in the New Testament saying, if you wanna know what God is like, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He is knowable. Jesus left us in the Holy Spirit so that we could commune with the Father. So when we don't even know how to pray, Romans 8, the Holy Spirit will intercede for us with groanings that we can't quite interpret, but we know they're real. He's knowable. Adoring God is thinking and talking about who God is. It is using the scriptures to make a cataloged list of, man, God is forgiving. God is loving. God is trustworthy. God always shows up. And then it's telling God things that he already knows about himself, but you're telling those things to God because you don't really believe it yet. How much anxiety would you miss in your life If you believe God thought of you like a beloved child and always showed up, he never didn't show up. It would change you in the most wonderful ways. And so first it's adoring. Second part of the triple threat, accepting. And so time spent accepting God's will will change you. Now this is actually kind of scary. Verse 10. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And like at first that doesn't seem really scary, but it is saying that God's will is coming. It is unfolding in my life. And if we look to the example of the scriptures, man, we see it everywhere. That God uses all things to conform things to his image and his likeness to make much of him and for our good. And so we see the promise in Romans 8, 28 that God is working all things for our good and his glory. But then we see it lived out in countless characters in the Bible. Like we see it lived out in Joseph. Like Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was wrongfully accused of rape and sent to prison for years. After all of that, he led a public service project to save a nation from starvation. And then he struggled to forgive his brothers when they were reunited. And in the end of it, he says, man, that was the will of God and it was good. But if you would ask old man Joseph, man, hey, what did that belief look like in prison when you were wrongfully accused? He'd be like, man, it wasn't so impressive. But it was just enough. Like accepting God's will is looking at your surroundings, looking at what's in your life and saying, man, God has placed me here to be among this, to live a certain way, to make much of him and it's for my good. One day, just like Joseph, when I look back at the corridor of my life and I see everything there, I'll be like, you were right. You were right, it was necessary. It was the good and right thing to do. I complained a lot. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of embarrassed by that now. You were right. Spending time in the scriptures and praying the scriptures back to God and saying, thy will be done is saying, listen, I need to be changed to see your good work in painful circumstances. This will change you. It'll save you. It'll save you from deforming bitterness. See, when we don't have that accepting peace in our life, 
we, we, we're so mad at the circumstances of our life and we shake our fist at God. Why can't it be different? How dare you? How could you do this to me? And we're not looking at a good father who's saying, hey, I've poured all of my life out. Just trust me. It'll, it'll change you. And so how do, you, how do you do that, man? You just, you crawl into the box fort. Everyone go home and make a box fort. You crawl into the box fort and you just start to talk to God about the things that you feel are wrong and you say things like, I know you're working in them. Will you talk to me about it? And so we have adore, we have accept, and then we have ask. And so asking God to move, it fortifies the grace-based relationship that you have through Christ in prayer. See, see look, look at it. Look at what we see in verse 11. So the first has, give us this day our daily bread. Ask for what you think you need. Ask, just ask. You might be wrong. God might say no, but ask. Like God loves to give good gifts to his kids. Verse 12, it says, and forgive us our debts. Ask for forgiveness. Like nothing fortifies a love relationship than being honest about what you did that was wrong. Not excusing it away, not saying, yeah, I mean, that was wrong, but you were so crazy. I mean, I had to. I mean, that is not asking for forgiveness. That is being permissive in what you did, acting like it's justified. Like when you actually say the things that you did wrong to God, you realize that the depth of his love goes deeper than you imagine because it goes deeper than the imaginary you that you show everyone else. Ask, forgive us our debts. Verse 12, as we forgive our debtors, the forgiveness of God is meant to pass through you to others. It is one of the most vital ways that we can know that the grace of God is real in our hearts and is changing us. Like, like jump down to verse 14. He comes back and he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you will not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive you. Like that is terrifying. And it's not saying as soon as you forgive someone, God's like, all right, now we can forgive them. It's not saying that at all. It's saying there is something transformative about the love of God and his forgiveness of your sins that catches our heart and it starts to change our heart of stone into something soft, See, it's almost impossible to forgive someone that you think you're better than them. Like if they did something, you're like, oh my gosh, they, they, I, I just, they're terrible. If you think you're better than them, it's almost impossible to actually forgive them. But if you see the same roots of sin in you, and if you go before the perfect love of God, you're like, man, I have done all the same things to you, and I've done similar things to other people, maybe in lesser ways, all of a sudden, it's not like I'm here, you're there. It's like, man, I need forgiveness too. See, the warning, showy religion produces an unforgiving battle hammer that crushes all who think, all who you think are less than you. And the warning goes on, like, if you, if you won't forgive people or step in it, like, forgiveness is never like, okay, I forgive. I mean, it's hard. You have to step into it and be like, ooh, that didn't feel good. Step back out. Then step back in. Like stepping toward forgiveness, if you won't step for, toward forgiveness for others, I think the Bible's saying, I, I don't know if you'll really ask for, I don't know if you'll repent. Like 
The same faith that would open your hand to forgive others is the same faith that would look at God and say, forgive me. And so he says there's this correlation and saying meditating on what God has covered in your life will make you a forgiving person. Like thinking that you earned it because you aren't as messed up like everyone else will make you a very unforgiving person. And the question is like, are you a forgiving person? Like it's pointing to how you try to relate to God. Am I going to God on my effort? I'm loved because I outperform these, you know, these schmoes out here. And so therefore I don't have to forgive them because they're not working as hard as me. Or are you going through Christ on a grace-based relationship and then you end with this prayer? And I think this is brilliant. I don't know why we don't pray this more. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What a crazy good prayer. Help me. Help me when I want to snap and hurt others who've hurt me. Help me when someone's taken from me and I just want to take back from them. Like, help me when I am so afraid that it makes me want to run or it makes me want to hide. Lord, deliver me. I know there's stuff out there that's bigger than me, but it's not bigger than you. Deliver me. Dad, come help me. See, praying in this grace-based way it changes you because you start to relate to God like he's your father. Like time in this kind of prayer will cause you to trust and treasure him. It'll cause you to trust and treasure his kingdom and his ways. Like when you come across like scripture that you don't like, you don't like what it says about you or you don't like what it says about what you should do or what you're not doing. Like the goal right there is to take that scripture, bring it into the box for, ask God to meet with you and just talk to God about the scripture and be honest, like, hey, I don't like it. And he's gonna be like, why don't you like it? Well, I don't wanna explain why I don't like it. And it starts to change you. but this is the good news. See, the message of the gospel is not just good advice that we would do better. Jesus didn't just come to say, pray better, pray this way. Jesus came and he did say, there's a better way to pray. Know that you're let in as a child of God and Father God always wants to get in the box for it with you. Know that, believe it, step in, invite him in but he made it possible. He made it possible because he prayed when the stakes were really high. In the garden, right before Jesus' death, when he saw what was about to come, he prayed, not my will, but yours. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And that prayer was finished on the cross when he prayed, Father, forgive them. See, that prayer Enemies forgiven kind of love. That prayer, enemies forgiven, was, the, was answered in the death of Jesus. Jesus died to make us enemies of God into children of God who can now pray our Father. And to have this kind of soul-changing prayer, you must know Jesus. There is no other means that you can get into this kind of prayer than through the person of Jesus by looking at the death and resurrection and saying, I need that more than I need food, more than I need approval from others, more than I need retribution when people have hurt me. I need that. It is the only thing that's gonna cross me, 
cross me over from death to life. Let me pray. Father, Lord, I pray that um, our prayers would change, Lord, that when we come and we ask things and we think we're gonna get them because we did a good job or we prayed the right way or we believed enough, Lord, that we would quickly chuckle and we would think about a box fort with a small child and just hearing the incoherent stories that is circular, that expand on unimportant details that don't even end right. And we would see joy in the Father's eyes as he helps shape our story. And so, Lord, we we just ask for help. And Lord, even in thinking about like fasting, like one thing that we have before us is a meal that doesn't really satisfy. It doesn't make us full, but it points to something that one day we will be fully satisfied because of what we know and what exists in our souls will be manifest face to face. What we see dimly will be clear. What we experience in moments will be permanent reality, Lord, that there will be a feasting one day and there will be a togetherness one day. And in that one day, we will look back, just like Joseph did over the course of our lives, and we'll say, gosh, if I would have spent just a little bit more time listening to you, I might have had less anxiety about those details or less fear about those details because you really were in them. And so, Lord, we come to you on the basis of Jesus and we sit like children talking to their father and we say, your kingdom come, your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.